Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Jesse Cohen will join us to talk about the best American science writing. T- so stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the world of scientific discoveries is vast and oftentimes complicated for even those well-versed in science. Luckily, science writers have produced an amazing array of pieces that detail the complexity of, of science for a general audience. We'll join us today to discuss their work, and this topic is Mr. Jesse Cohen. Mr. Cohen is the series editor for the Best American Science Writing Series, which has just released their 2010 edition. Mr. Cohen, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you. It's, it's great to be back. We're uh, certainly glad to have you back. Uh, you were on last year talking about the uh, 2009 edition of uh, right. the Best American Science Writing, and this is, I think, a, a well-anticipated collection of pieces here. What were uh, some some of the ideas in terms of trying to compile this edition of, of the book? Well, this year we had the good fortune of having as our guest editor Jerome Groupman, who uh, is a well-known surgeon and uh, writer about science for The New Yorker and in best-selling books. He's up in Harvard, and he actually worked with us on something we did back in the spring, which, to honor the 10th anniversary of the Best American Science Writing Series, we collected a kind of anthology of anthologies. We picked the two articles from each of our 10 previous editions, and Jerome Groupman wrote the introduction for that, and we called that the best of the best American (laughs) science writing. So he had a good sense from that about what he wanted to do, which was to try to have a wide look at what's going on in the past year in science and also to find those articles that have a special quality or interest or any other special quality about them that makes them particularly intriguing. Yeah, I, I noticed in his introduction he uh, this is uh, trying to construct a symphony in a way. That's right. I think that's actually a really good way to describe it because he was trying to find different pieces that would combine for a harmonious whole. And that's how some editors approach it. We've had guest editors who would like to focus more than others on certain areas or who are looking specifically for uh, articles on certain subjects. But I think Jerry was very happy to be able to just pick the things that he thought worked best. And I think that's often a, a great way to go. I think our readers appreciate it. And I think what we wound up with was a collection of 20-odd really effective pieces that will make people think, that will surprise them, make them scratch their heads, make them smile, and once again show where scientists are heading right now. I mean, you've had an excellent collection of editors of the books, everybody from James Glick to Oliver Sacks. I mean, is there sort of a direction you take in terms of trying to get editors for the the series? Well, we do try to look for writers or or scientists who are known to the public and who have some name recognition 
but also who are excited about doing this. And so we've been really fortunate that the people we've worked with have been thrilled to be on the series and to be reviewing all this stuff. I think they're very interested in what is going on as well. And I think they're also interested in what in, in their fellow writers are doing. Uh, so there's a professional interest there as well. Mm. Uh, well, there are certainly a, a number of interesting pieces, and I, I don't think we could have time to chat about them all, but <laughs> <laughs> I wish there were. <laughs> that would be great. I'd be happy to all day if I need to. Well, maybe we'll just start out with a, a general question. Did you have any particular favorite pieces from this uh, series? Well, it's funny because a lot of people ask me that. Mm-hmm. And I would probably be invoking the wrath of 20-odd <laughs> writers if I were to pick one, uh, but there were quite a few that struck my fancy this year especially and you know they do different things some galvanize you some make you uh, think about things in a different way some are disturbing and some are are kind of fun you know there's a terrific piece that, that we put at the very end of this collection this year as a little kind of dessert by Cornelia Dean, who writes for the New York Times. And it's about a geophysicist uh, out in California who started a collection of sand. And it's really quite charming. He has hundreds of little vials of sand collected from beaches all around the world. He started the collection himself, but then as it got to be known, people sent it, sent sand to him. <laughs> So he has this wonderful collection, and it's actually, you know, there's a lot to learn from it. Uh, there, there are interesting things you can find out about the environment, about the um, sort of the geophysical history of these beaches, and more generally of the Earth. But I thought that was just such a charming look into how a scientist's interests or obsessions can actually lead to valuable discovery. That's amazing how little things like that just sort of spark scientific inquiry. That's exactly right. Yeah. And and I think one thing that really, really, really comes through in this anthology this year especially is the breadth and the, just the extent of scientific inquiry. I mean, uh, there doesn't seem to be anything that scientists aren't looking into. I mean, we, we have this wonderful article by a psychologist, uh, Daniel Wegner, who is exploring that odd phenomenon of why it is that no matter how hard you try not to do something or think of something, you invariably wind up doing it or saying it out loud. And he calls this ironic repression. You know, despite our best attempts to actively repress something that may embarrass us or that we don't want to mention for whatever reason, it bubbles back up to the surface. And there's actually quite uh, literature and an enormous amount of research into this very strange phenomenon. And it just shows that I think scientists are fascinated by the same things everybody else. And we've gotten to a point in science where the tools are subtle enough and sensitive enough to be able to explore some of these things. Hmm. There are a lot of people who lack a little bit of that self-editing function. Um, No, I know, right? That's very true, and that often comes out in election years, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, it is a very diverse collection of articles, and I think one really gets the sense of breadth of interest in science, and one kind of almost feels compelled and driven to appreciating the beauty of, I guess, scientific line of inquiry through reading these articles. I think that's true. I mean, I think one of the things is we really have the human factor represented in these articles, so you get to see how scientists are doing their work, going about their jobs, and the 
kinds of things that are of concern to them. And that does throw open a window into the whole process of scientific discovery, of inquiry, and exploration. Hmm. Obviously, a lot of big issues in the book that are, are sort of touched on, uh, such as evolution and, and scientific inquiry in America. Chris Mooney and Cheryl Kirschenbaum have their, their thing on, on popular science, in which she actually had a book out recently as That's well. Right. Yeah. That's right. And their concern is, and it's interesting, and of course, I think it was natural we would include it in an anthology of science mm-hmm. writing. Their concern was about science writing, mm-hmm. because their fear is that there are fewer and fewer venues. Uh, for good science writing, with print media on the way out, or at least in perhaps an irreversible decline. They are concerned that science is not going to be able to find that place where it can engage with the public. And their concern, obviously, about that is that you'll have a situation where the public is less and less well-informed, where the conversation stops. And so you have ignorance on the one hand and specialization on the other, and there isn't real communication between the general public and the scientific uh, community. And I would say that that is, that is a big concern. On the other hand, there are a lot of blogs that are going on right now, and a lot of online places, but I think they're right to point out that the blogging and so on is nice and great and really important, but not enough because there's something about the impact of being in a general interest publication where somebody reading about something else might wander to or feel compelled to read about a subject considered newsworthy. Indeed. And sort of the problem with, uh, or at least sort of preaching the converted, and one generally finds the information that reinforces one's own worldview. Well, that's something they point out, too. I mean, they talk about the two most popular, or at least at the time of the writing of the article, the two most popular science-related blogs. Mm -hmm. And both of them are very partisan. One is a very strongly neo-atheist blog, and the other is an anti-global warming blog. So they come with very strong points of view, and I think it speaks to what you just said, that when people do go on the Internet, they do tend to want to read things that reinforce their own points of view. And so you get this echo chamber effect, and you're not necessarily engaging with something that might disturb you or that comes from a different place than you're used to or familiar with. Well, certainly there are a number of good science writers out there who are tackling a lot of these issues and trying to get it out there to the general public. One of the interesting ones was a piece by Steven Pinker, in which he's talking about looking at his own genome to see where genetic testing can actually go in the future. And this is uh, certainly an issue, I think, for maybe the next couple of years. Yes, I think everyone's concerned about a kind of Gattaca world where uh-huh. we're all going to be typecast based on what our genomes say. And his point is not to worry too much. I mean, he points out that that reading the, the genome and, and making conclusions or drawing conclusions from what your alleles say or your various SNPs say is that there are statistical probabilities, but they don't really mean much at the individual level. So he talks about how his genome is saying that he's likely to be bald when, in fact, he has a very healthy head of hair and is probably not going to go bald anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So it it just goes to show you that, you know, there's a lot else going on beyond the genome. And I think that's coming out more and more in research about epigenetic effects that have a role to play on our development. Now, even if you look at twins, who um, identical twins who share an identical genome, there's still a lot of differences between them. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, somewhat of a related story uh, is one from uh, Kathleen McAuliffe when she talks about uh, whether or not we're still evolving. And apparently we are. I mean, that's <laughs> it's really interesting. I mean, I think this is uh, an interesting topic to begin with, the way in which we are evolving. And it touches on some sensitive issues like can we characterize race, for instance. But it's also interesting because it's showing what else is evolving, which is our understanding of evolution. So uh, it wasn't that long ago when it was said by authoritative people that human beings had stopped evolving, that once we had reached a certain level of adaptation to our environment, evolution had pretty much ended. Now that we can look back at our genetic history, we can see where our genome got altered and where new genes got inserted and what those were for, like lactose tolerance, for instance, which developed fairly recently in the last 10,000 years or so in Northern Europe because cow milk was a staple. And obviously, those who could digest it without too many problems had an evolutionary advantage and passed that gene along. And there are other things like that. And in genetic history, 10,000 years is nothing. You know, that's, that's a blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. So there are many ways in which we're still evolving. Now, where it gets tricky and where there's more controversy is some claims that our brains are still evolving and there are ways to map the ways in which our brains are evolving. And I think she talks about how there are scientists who would argue that that is much less certain claim to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, another of the interesting uh, articles in the book is really how humans might be influencing the evolution of planet and other species, really whether or not there's an extinction caused by humans, and that's uh, the piece by Elizabeth Colbert. Yes, Elizabeth Colbert, who, whose beat is the environment and has been writing so effectively and heartbreakingly, unfortunately, about the state of the environment right now, uh, what global warming is doing and what the human intervention in the environment is doing. And she talks about the fact that we are going through and may well be going through a mass extinction event, one that started, interestingly enough, at about the same time that Homo sapiens reached the point of leaving Africa and starting to travel around the world. And it's interesting, even though, you know, there weren't that many human beings 40, 50,000 years ago, where they went, they had an impact on the environment, even if it wasn't a direct one, and caused the extinction of certain animals. Just because there were wild animals that went extinct, it doesn't mean necessarily that the human beings killed them by hunting them to death, although sometimes that did happen. It it just meant that something the human beings did to the environment made it much tougher for those animals to find food or to live, and before you knew it, they died out. So the surmise is, and the, uh, or it's more than a surmise, I think you know, there's some very suggestive evidence that human beings are having this effect on uh, other species. And we may be in the midst of a huge mass die-off, which is a terrifying prospect. Mm-hmm. The book also, as you mentioned, has a lot of stories or pieces in it that are kind of more deeply personal or interesting piece in there, which it talks about scientists who use their kids as, as their subjects, piece by Pam Bullock. Yes, which was a terrific piece. And and I think what it shows is, on the one hand, scientists are so restlessly inquisitive. And, and a lot of them, especially those who study development, behavior, uh, psychology, 
to have built-in test subject like that is uh, just too tempting. But it does raise some ethical concerns, and uh, I think the article does a really good job of talking about some of those and whether it's such a good idea. And in fact, there are grown children who of scientists who have been, been test subjects or subjected to some of these studies by their parents and who are resentful and unhappy about it. I think one of my favorite pieces in the book uh, is actually this uh, piece by Jonah Lehrer, The Truth About Grit. Yes. <laughs> It's a great piece, and he's a terrific young writer who's such an interesting person. And I thought what was so great about this piece and some other pieces, even though uh, this piece said it most directly, but the other pieces suggested it, science seems to be validating right now something we always knew about Mm -hmm. what makes us happy and successful and generally what makes for a happier life. In this case, it's sticking to things, uh, showing tenacity, working hard. It's Thomas Edison's 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Mm -hmm. And science is bearing that out, uh, that people who, especially when they exhibit this at a young age, who have the tenacity to stick with something despite obstacles and discouraging results do tend to have a better rate of success and seem to be happier people than those who flit from one thing to another or who run from something at the first sign of discouragement. So stick to it and this is the trick. To it, it seems to be. I mean, you could take five people, all of whom have equal IQs and come from strong educational backgrounds and so on. And the one, I think, who has the most grit is probably going to do the best. <laughs> like I said, I wish we could talk about all the pieces in the book, but there certainly isn't time. People are interested in, in the book itself and just going out to find good science writing. Is there any uh, advice? Look and see where good science writing can be found. Oh, my goodness. Well, there's so much. There's so much on the Internet, and there, there are terrific magazines. I don't know if I'd, I'd be able to just narrow it down to one, but the book is available online, you know, online booksellers and in the bookstores. So it's a great place to start. And we always say where we get the pieces from, so people reading this can go to those publications and take a look at those as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can we expect from the uh, 2011 edition? Not sure yet. Uh, it's We've got a terrific guest editor in, in Rebecca Skloot, and I think it's going to be a, a terrific volume. I know that she's, like Jerome Groupman, interested in a broad array of things, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see what bubbles up. Okay, well, we'll have to look forward to it and uh, have you back on the program next year. I'd love that. That would be terrific. All right. Well, the anthology here is The Best American Science Writing 2010, and uh, the uh, editor is uh, Jerome Groupman, and of course we'd like to thank Jess Cohen, who's the uh, series editor for the series. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. And you were just listening to Jesse Cohen talk about The Best American Science Writing. This is the Grok Science Show. We'll be right back.
time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Wild Type or Mutant. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would classify them as being Wild Type or a Mutant and uh, maybe a little reason why. Mr. Cohen, you ready to play the game? Okay, I'll try. All right, here we go. Uh, person number one, wild type or mutant, it's the uh, pop star Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness, my son loves Lady Gaga, so I, uh, he's 10. I don't know how these young people learn about these things, but yes, oh, my goodness. Well, on, in deference to my son's preferences, I'll say that she's a wild type. She's a free spirit and genuinely wild person. <laughs> All right, very good. Number two, uh, the actor David Hasselhoff. Well, my goodness, that's a good question. He doesn't seem all that wild anymore, but is he really a mutant? I guess, with no disrespect to a man of great talent, I would say mutant. Okay. <laughs> uh, number three, uh, the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. Oh, wow. Richard Dawkins. Definitely not a mutant. I think he's, uh, he's a wild type in that he is a provoc provocateur and, and is uh, willing to be a maverick to uh, buck preconceived notions and follow his convictions. So definitely a wild type. Okay. Person number four, it's Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> My goodness. I don't know what category to put her in. I mean, she's, she, I would certainly not say she's a, a mutant, but whether she comes across as a wild type, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Can I take a pass? We'll, we'll pass on Oprah. It's, it's her last year on air, so she can, she can get a pass. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, number five, uh, the former governor of the state uh, of Illinois, anyway, uh, Rod Blagojevich. Mutant. <laughs> Definitely a mutant. Have you looked at his hair? I mean, that's obviously... It's a dead giveaway, I think. Yes, I think so. All right. All right. Well, uh, Mr. Cohen, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing the game, uh, the Grokatron 5000. And again, pleasure. Uh, talking about the uh, theology series here, the best American science writing now in the uh, 2010 edition. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you again. It was a pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.